The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. This is Steve Orlands, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm here today with Mike Landon, who is a former President of the National Committee and is now the is a professor and director of Chinese studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. He's also chairman of the Asia Foundation. He recently published a book entitled Following the Leader, Ruling China from Deng Xiaoping to Xi Jinping. Mike, thanks for joining us today. And start by telling us why this book and why now. Well, I think... um if you're going to be effective in dealing with people, you have to try to get into what you might say the heads, and in particular China being a centralized society, it's important to understand how Chinese leaders uh, look at their own experience, the world and the United States, and, and to try and understand their motivations before you try to be effective dealing with them. I think U.S.-China relations are um, in a complicated period, economic relations uh, strong, uh, cultural relations strong, but quite frankly, I'm quite worried about the strategic drift. And so I thought at this moment, uh, careful management of U.S.-China relations is more necessary than ever, and maybe the first intellectual step there is to try to understand uh, this fifth generation of Chinese leaders and the journey they've been on, how they look at us, how they look at their ambitions in the world, and maybe with that kind of perspective, we can be more effective. And what does the analysis tell you about kind of the future of the relationship and how the Chinese are going to deal? Well, uh, I th- think there's uh, certainly good news and, and probably uh, less good news. Uh, the good news is that, of course, China has its own massive transformation to manage internally, and governing China is an enormous uh, more than full-time job, and China's leaders uh, have just uh, hum- nature throws problems at them. Their own bureaucracy throws problems at them. The problems of getting growth in the first case and sustainable growth in the second. So China's default, Chinese leaders' default positions, importantly, on their own set of problems. And therefore, I suppose the good news, in one sense, is that uh, the the United the Chinese leaders are not sort of sitting around trying to figure out how to make our life more difficult and they have more they have incentives important incentives not to get too distracted externally and therefore i think fundamentally we ought to be able to manage this relationship on the other hand china is getting more interests abroad and more people working and residing abroad more investments abroad um, is becoming more anxious to protect its own security ever farther from its shores. And therefore, there's a kind of contradiction between the Chinese for more, uh, what you might call, security buffer around and more power projection capability to protect its interests in the world. And of course, the more people that China can reach out and touch, so to speak, uh, some sense their neighbors and others get more worried. So 
I would say fundamentally uh, China's development puts the incentive to focus at home, but there are important things drawing Chinese both military and diplomatic and economic uh, attention abroad. And so there's a kind of tension here in, among Chinese leaders about focusing internally versus uh, more attention externally. But um, I think if we uh, manage the security relationship with sensitivity on both sides and uh, realize that China's leaders are focused internally, this won't be an easy relationship to manage, but it'll at least be possible. The book is based upon literally hundreds of meetings and interviews you did with Chinese leaders at all different levels. Um, and a lot of them, based on time, you were at the National Committee. Mm -hmm. What stands out most in your mind? Um, what's the single most kind of surprising thing that occurred during any one of these meetings? Well, uh, there were lots of uh, uh, lots of uh, moments, I suppose. Um, probably the most uh, memorable was uh, a. a um, conversation with uh, China's then president, but he was just outgoing. Uh, Jiang Zemin uh, was in, as I recall, November of 2002. And uh, he was just had given up his position as general secretary, hadn't given up the positions of either president or um, uh, chairman of the Central Military Commission. But he was clearly reflecting back on uh, his his time as um, un, as a premier leader, uh, and uh, reflecting on a couple of things. Of course, what he had accomplished, and I think um, Jiang Zemin, not only in his own evaluation but my own, was uh, really quite a good leader for for China. Brought it into the WTO, um, um, brought China out of the isolation of Tiananmen, uh, developed uh, Shanghai, Pudong was the motive force behind the Spaceman Space Program. Um, certainly presided over uninterrupted high-speed economic growth and on balance I think was a good leader for China and he was reflecting on it and he talked about Mao Zedong and how Mao had had three successors and uh, really none of them had worked out and Deng Xiaoping had had uh, three successors the first two didn't work out but he Jiang Zemin did work out uh, and then uh, he Jiang Zemin was only going to have one successor it was going to be Hu Jintao and so forth uh, on the one hand, uh, he, I think, genuinely um, wished Hu Jintao the best. On the other hand, he, I'd say he was clearly reluctant to give up all power. And as we walked out of the room, uh, he sort of, um, in a, uh, I don't want to say plaintive voice, but voice said, um, I won't interfere with the younger generation, which um, meant that I think, in a sense, he was going to pay a lot of attention to the next generation. So I got a sense of uh, leadership in, in, in that conversation, how he viewed his predecessors, what he viewed as his own uh, successes, and what struck me as sort of the, um, uh, the humanity of the situation. In the book, you come out strongly believing that China must engage in political reform. Why and kind of what if the leadership decides that it cannot have political reform until economic reform is complete, which is obviously not until the next decade? Well, uh, I mean, to answer the question in its most stark way, I think the longer they defer 
uh, what I would call uh, bringing the political system into harmony with the, with the social and economic system that reform has created until there's a greater congruence between the political institutions and the new society. The longer they defer that, I think the more difficult the adjustment will be when it occurs. And so basically, uh, I would uh, subscribe to the proposition, the sooner the better measured steps towards uh, political um, change or reform occur, uh, probably the better. On the other hand, I don't think we should have a simplistic notion of what constitutes uh, either political reform. I think there are many uh, ways in which China could take its uh, current institutions and adapt them to be more appropriate to a pluralized society. And I think whatever happens should happen gradually because precipitous change is likely to um, uh, be, be a problem. Also, we shouldn't have a simplistic notion of what political change is because I think economic reform can very um, directly relate to political form. And a perfect example would be the recent 60 decisions of the third plenum of the 18th Central Committee. Uh, the, the primary decision was to make the market the uh, primary driver in the allocation of resources. And so if you make the market uh, the primary uh, force uh, directing the flow of resources in Chinese society among firms, among the private versus the public sector, and so forth, uh, and you allow the more free entry of capital into China from abroad, uh, this, in fact, is removing decision power from the Chinese Communist Party and giving it to the diffuse firms, individuals, uh, other sectors of society. So I think the, many of the things that uh, were talked about in the third plenum actually have a great bearing on the, the role, operation of the, um, the Chinese Communist Party and could fairly be called political reform. In addition, they, they talked about uh, the administration through labor uh, Lao Gai system being changed, we will see. They talked about uh, so-called independence of the judicial system. We'll see about that and what they mean there. Uh, but I think um, there is some possibility if they implement the, uh, a good fraction of the key 60 points, uh, that you, that in itself will be some measurable political reform. But in general, until they adjust the institutions to more uh, provide better channels of interest articulation, more fairness, more predictability, more transparency, more accountability, uh, I think the longer those uh, transitions are deferred, the bigger the problem. What about the influence of leaders after they retire? Uh -huh. Which is, it seems it's much greater in China than in the United States, Europe, or Japan. Yeah. Well, it seems to, just if you look at the record of since since Mao, um, it there's been a mixed record. You would say um, Hua Guofeng followed Mao Zedong, but was not a significant factor for any significant period after Deng Xiaoping removed uh, came back on the stage in mid 1977. Uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, if you say Deng Xiaoping in relationship to Jiang Zemin, he was a massive force because Jiang Zemin came in as a relatively less known leader with less strong deep tap roots into the Chinese political system. Deng Xiaoping uh, lived until uh, 1997, although his later years 
numbers were uh, fairly weak. But he was at, at, almost at the height of his political power f uh, for a considerable period after John took over in 1989, not least including inspiring, uh, you know, a renewal of economic reform in his trip of 1992. So you would say Deng Xiaoping played a major role. Uh, Jiang Zemin uh, played a, a significant, although maybe episodic, role with Hu Jintao, uh, and, but sort of behind the scenes and hard to discern to the outsider. Uh, it looks to me like Hu Jintao, with respect to Xi Jinping, is playing a very, um, um, I would say, invisible to the outside world role. So I don't think there is a um, you know hard and fast rule. I think it depends on who the predecessor was, how successful they were perceived to be, what their base of power was versus the their successor. Uh, but it looks to me like Xi Jinping uh, he is not um, highly beholden to his predecessor. You say corruption in the book. You say corruption is a time bomb ticking at the regime's clay feet. What do you mean by clay feet? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, of course, it's a turn of phrase. I guess what I mean is, and uh, is to put in an English um, uh, aphorism, uh, what Chinese leaders themselves say about their own situation. Uh, you had Wen Jiabao, the preceding premier, uh, going down to Guangdong and saying that a, another cultural revolution was impossible if the political system didn't change and eliminate corruption. Uh, Xi Jinping himself, his mantra has been that corruption is a, a, a vital grave threat to the uh, Chinese Communist Party's continued rule. Um, of course, Jiang Zemin before that went after corruption in the People's Liberation Army in, initially in 1995 and then 1998 and saw the corruption within the People's Liberation Army as a threat to Chinese foreign policy, including uh, selling weapons, uh, let us say, through dubiously um, uh, legitimate channels abroad and so forth. And Xi Jinping himself is undertaking uh, uh, anti-corruption efforts in the People's Liberation Army. So whether it's the party or the army, and not to mention the state structure itself, these are each bureaucracies with basically millions of people, in most cases tens of millions. Uh, and so I don't think that's anything other than an English rendering of what the Chinese themselves are saying about the the necessity to get corruption under under um, under control. Situational ethics is also a wonderful term that you use to describe foreign China's foreign policy view. Can you elaborate on that a little? Well, uh, I guess there's a long uh, section, and it's in the, the part of the book that deals with how the Chinese uh, view foreign policy and how they view their circumstances. They become more uh, powerful. Uh, but basically, it's trying to describe um, a, a distinction I'm trying to make between how, in some sense, broadly speaking, the West looks at international relations and the and the role of international norms and rules and how China does, and also internally as well. And I guess I try to make the point that uh, there is a difference here. And the difference between the West and China, broadly speaking, is you know, the West is built on rules and norms and institutions. And it's no accident that, uh, you know, Moses goes up on Sinai and comes back with Ten Commandments. 
uh, and we're we're kind of oriented towards predictable rules, constitutions, and so forth, where your position in the system is not entirely dependent on your power, but it's dependent on your uh, your rights under the, the framework of law. I think the Chinese start from a much more interconnected networks uh, understanding. Part uh, I would say it derives from Confucian culture, in which one's position in in the international system or even in the domestic system is a function of your position in society. Your really your power, your influence. And so as a nation or individual's power goes up or down, the rights and duties and responsibilities and, and role changes. And what I'm really trying to say is a weak China of certainly the last 150 years before the communists and for much of the communist era, China was a poor and weak country. And it, uh, quite frankly, didn't expect much out of the international system because its, its own position uh, was quite subordinate on almost every meaningful power term. But the last story of the last 30 years is China's power has been increasing, and therefore its uh, role in all this international and network is increasing. And quite frankly, a rich and powerful China does expects more and more privileges, more power and in, in influence in the international system than a weak and poor China did. And so the fundamental strategic challenge, it seems to me, for you might say the West or China's neighbors or the United States is that as China gains power, respect, and certainly confidence in the international system, it's going to expect adjustments in the preceding rules to some extent. Uh, and uh, China's privileges and, and, for example, it's going to affect, expect as it gets ch uh, stronger that the United States respects its, its security buffer. You know, it might have been, okay, t the 12-mile nautical limit uh, in the 19th and most of the 20th century, but China now wants a security buffer that extends considerably further off its shore and in the sky and in space and so forth. And the previously more dominant powers have to decide how far they're going to go in accommodating or adjusting to or being realistic about uh, these demands. And so all I'm saying is uh, I don't think this is an insidious um, um, comparison or an attempt to describe an aggressive power. I think the Chinese just see themselves in a very complicated world. They're gaining status and influence, and they expect to derive benefits from this increased status. We're out of time, so I'd like to thank Mike Lampton for joining us today and urge our listeners to read his new book, Following the Leader. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you, Steve.